Okay, welcome to the Six Cells podcast. This is Mike Nicholson from Six Cells. Today we're talking about how behavioral science and evolutionary psychology can help us to solve tomorrow's challenges by borrowing from yesterday's solutions. Uh, to explore this fascinating topic, today's guest is Sam Tatum. Sam is the head of behavioral science at Ogilvy and the author of the awesome book, Evolutionary Ideas. So Sam, a very warm welcome to the Six Cells podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's honestly, it's my pleasure. I'm, I've absolutely loved your book um, so far. It's, it doesn't normally take me this long to read a book, but <laughs> I keep getting to a chapter with a new psychological principle and then having to stop and make notes and think because I can't concentrate on what comes next because I'm still thinking about what came before. So um, it's probably the most involved I've been in a book in a little while. There's, there's some absolute gold That's in right. there. And what I, what I love about it is that you introduce a principle, you then give examples of that principle, and then you give us questions that we might want to ask ourselves afterwards um if we want to apply that principle in our own world whether that be in as media advertising execs or whether that be marketers trying to um, market a brand you know there's there's some really sort of pertinent questions um, and as I say I've made copious notes Evernote's been on fire as I've been um, <laughs> furiously trying to uh, trying to learn from it so um, there's so many insights in the book and, and to go through them all would require us to break some sort of podcasting record I think so um, I've picked a couple of them um, and I'd like to chat to you about those today if that's okay. Wonderful. No, thank you. And I'm thrilled it's been a, a, an enjoyable and helpful read. It really has. Um, it, it really has. And, and I keep thinking of things that I can learn from it, but also things that um, our clients at Six Cells can learn from it, which makes it so valuable, obviously. But um, and, and on top of that, it's just so super interesting. Um, so the, the first psychological principle that I'd like to talk to you about, Sam, is um, signaling and in, in particular reputational cost. Um, and in this chapter, there were three sentences that really landed with me. Um, the first one, which I'm going to use and steal, and I'll, I'll quote you, of course, but I'm going to use this a lot. Uh, and, and I'd love you to talk a little bit more about what you mean by this. I think I understand, but I think it's, it's really clear, but I'd love to hear it in your own words, is that trust is the cornerstone of all human cooperation. And that's a wonderful, um, a wonderful sentence. And to me, it's super clear, but I'd love you to talk about that in a second the second sentence that really landed with me was to build trust often it's not just about seeing the message it's knowing that other people have seen it too um, and the, the last sentence is more of a question that you give us in order to, to help us to perhaps implement uh, this this principle and the question is how might we communicate promises publicly to reinforce message trustworthiness so what's going on here sam well, so you've 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 landed on a fascinating part of the the book, and and to provide um, our listeners with a bit of context as to sort of how the 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 the, the concept of signalling sits within the book, it's really around the chapter on trust, and how we can help to sort of reinforce trust without without necessarily changing the truth, uh, and and you mentioned trust as a cornerstone of human co cooperation. If we think of of transaction of financial markets everything fundamentally relies on relies on on trust it can be leaving your children with the babysitter it can be entrusting your bank and with your with your superannuation or your or your savings it can be picking up bread from the baker and assuming that it's not stale um or the or the, or the butcher that says they're organic do you really trust that they are when you can't tell yourself <laughs> what your chicken has been fed right so 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 many facets of our life uh, are reliant on on trust and in, in scenarios where what academia would call uh, there's sort of being an asymmetry of information 
right? So to, to talk about the butcher analogy, um, if a butcher says it's organic, I sort of need to trust them, right? Because I can't see the rearing of the beast. Uh, I, I must trust that this is where it comes from. So what are, what are some signals that might help to reinforce this? Uh, and, and in the book, um, I've really learned a lot around nature and evolutionary theory um, to, to sort of shape how we're exploring applied behavioral science. Um, that actually applied behavioral science can be, um, is, a, is an evolutionary process. And there are lots of examples of fascinating innovations in the wild that we can now more easily see and, uh, and implement. So when we look at, at signaling, signaling is, is, is rich within the, 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 the natural world. Many of us might be familiar with sort of famous examples of costly signaling, um, like the, the peacock's extravagant tail. Right? The, the male peacock has this long tail or train, um, this flamboyant display um, that's really sort of a, a, a cost, right? Having this cumbersome tail makes it more of a, uh, of, a, of, a, of a target for predators. It costs a lot of energy by which to grow. Um, but because of this cost, it becomes a far more reliable signal of that male peacock's fitness than a, a, a peacock just walking around saying, I'm, 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 I'm rich. <laughs> Everyone can tell you they're rich. Show me. And, and in the animal world, it shows it through its, its plumage. So in a signal, it pays to be costly. Um, so if something, if, if, if something doesn't cost, then it's probably not a, not a strong signal of trustworthiness. And when we talk about then reputational costs, and I know I'm sort of um, bunching a few concepts in this response, but while there can be a cost to the peacock um, with its plumage, there can be a, a, also a, a reputational cost or the likelihood of retribution if my signal is dishonest. Um, so if, for example, I'm going around telling, telling, telling all the peahens that I'm, I'm rich, but really I'm wearing faux feathers, right? Other hens will say, no, they're, they're fake. I was, I was with that, in, that, that peacock last week and they're fake feathers. So if there are other, other, others around us that can call us out, um, then that is, that is more of a cost. Um, and therefore, the more costly the signal, the more reliable it can be. So to speak to this then in broadcast media, for example, we were speaking before that actually having a message then that's displayed to many other people within a given group um, makes it a higher cost to our reputation. There's a bigger chance of retribution if we're lying to people. Right? If we're lying to a thousand people, there's a greater chance of one person saying, no, that's bullshit. <laughs> that's not organic meat. I've mm. actually, I know the butcher, I know the farmer, and, and, and that's not organic meat. So the more people that are exposed to the message, the greater the chance of retribution or someone calling you out. So, so actually, it, sometimes, very often, we find digital brands that might live in um, sort of huge digital ecosystems on a one-to-one um, platform actually apply traditional media when talking about things like safety or privacy. When we look at the likes of Facebook or Google or Uber, when they're talking about the safety of their cars or, or privacy protection on, 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 on Facebook or Google, they tend to take out TV spots and large out-of-home messages. Uh, and, and I think part of that is just the evidence that lots of other people are seeing this too, if it was face, false, there's a, there's a higher chance of them being called out. Okay, that's really interesting. And obviously, we're talking predominantly here about 
brands um, trying to reach consumers um, uh, a lot of the time. But but it, it occurred to me as I was reading that that actually there's something that we could learn as individuals within our own industry as well, right? Mm. So um, I can't remember the exact placement that advertising got in the Edelman Trust survey, but it was right down the bottom and it was near bankers and politicians. So there is a trust crisis, you would say, um, potentially in the in the advertising world. Um, at Six Sales, we help people um, in our industry to get the messages out of their heads and into the news feeds of their clients via places such as LinkedIn. And it, um, you know, ghostwriting what people are thinking and getting it out into little sort of short stories. And it occurred to me that that if you have some very solid promises that you can make about what your product or services does within your industry, and you're willing to talk about that publicly, there's potentially um, the chance of you benefiting from this principle, would you say? I think so. The more people that are exposed to, to, to your message, the higher the reputational cost of, 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 of dishonesty. Um, so if, 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 if trust is a, is a factor, um, then oftentimes it's not the sort of the one-to-one -one email, right? We've all received this. The, 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 the outreach on LinkedIn in your email <laughs> or, the, or, or the, the, the single email that drops into your inbox um, that's a, a direct sale. I mean, how, how trusting are we of this versus actually seeing something that's, um, that's publicly available, that's, that's received thousands of views, um, that actually, if you scroll down the comments, no one's, no one's saying, oh, by the way, they don't feed their chickens organic. <laughs> it's not an organic chicken. Yeah. Um, we, 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 we can see that. And, and the more people exposed to the message, the higher the chance of that retrib retribution. And is there, um, so, so it would seem to me a really um, good argument for why uh, broadcast advertising, such as TV or radio or outdoor, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, um, might be a good idea because not only can we see the message, but we can see that other people have seen the message. But with things like TV and outdoor, we can not only see that other people have seen the message, we might be seeing it at the same time. Is that uh, an even better um, sort of situation for the brand? If, if not only am I watching TV, but I'm watching it with other people so I can actually people. see that other people are seeing it at the same time. Certainly, I think and that, that can work again from a reputational cost. But when we start to talk about expensive media, then we go again back to the 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 the, what would be called the sort of the utility cost of the of the message mm -hmm. if we go back to our peacock i mean this is a this is a utility there, there is a cost to that plumage um, and it's the cost that helps us believe that it's honest um, so actually being able to spend two million dollars on a 30 second super bowl ad is itself a signal um, that you have $2 million to spend on 30 seconds of airspace because you've got $2 million because you've got lots of clients and you've got this money to spend. Yeah. Um, so uh, I explore in the book uh, um, some, some research um, uh, that's been conducted uh, by Domati that looks at um, sort of the execution of a message. So if something looks expensive, even if it's the same message, it can be um, perceived as being more trustworthy. So the, the actual expense of the production on, on broadcast media or, or at the extreme, let's think about the Super Bowl, is one thing It says sort of there is a cost to this message. Um, if uh, a principle isn't principle until it costs us something, but also because of the, the, the broad audience, there's a higher retribution um, cost or reputational cost that's really interesting um and, and a hidden benefit of a lot of broadcast media that despite being in the industry for 25 years i perhaps hadn't appreciated until now um yeah really interesting so the second well, oh, sorry did you have gone just so, well there's that classic and this is i know we've, we've um 
both close to, to Rory Sutherland, the founder of the practice at, at Ogilvy, and he's got a lovely, oftentimes people say sort of 50% of our marketing doesn't work, we just don't know which which 50%, and, and one argument that Rory takes is actually it's the 50% that you don't know that's the that's the, that's the, the, the valuable bit. I mean, it's the, it's the expense of the, of the wastage um, mm. that actually can be valuable, um, rather than knowing that there's a direct ROI for every digital click, actually sometimes the waste, the extravagance, the cost, um, provides the signal of 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 trust that's required um, to bring people in, and that's why if we look at, and again this is from the the, the book of Sutherland, if we look at, at at brands and if we look at um, individuals who might have a scarcer resource, we actually have a tendency for people to steer towards brands because there's less uh, sort of if I lose four hundred dollars on a on a TV, it's not going to sort of wipe me out. But for 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 some individuals it, it, that's that's a that's a that's a large that's a large expense. So I'd much yeah. rather spend five hundred on a trusted brand um, than four hundred on a on a on a no name that is a higher risk. So there's lots of really lovely areas to explore in this space. And that's and what you're just saying there about brands, that's that also goes into familiarity leading to trust right so yeah. um, if you've seen samsung other tvs are available um, advertised a lot and you see it over a period of time and then you become in market for a tv and then there's a high sense which you've never heard of um, yeah. and you think okay well the samsung is only slightly more expensive that's a better tv and it might not even be like technically speaking it could be a, an inferior tv but you trust it because of the familiarity and 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 that familiarity leads to trust that's right yeah really interesting so the second psychological principle that I wanted to ask you about, Sam, is social proof. Um, I've, I've read a bit about this over the years. Um, Dr. Robert Cialdini brought it out as one of his six principles of persuasion back in the 80s, I think. Um, and when talking about social proof in the book, you quoted a professor of psychology, Steve Stewart Williams, who said, for one thing, the people around you aren't dead. So if you do what they do, eat what they eat avoid the dark alleys that they avoid, you might continue not being dead as well, which I loved. But that was uh, it's quite a uh, quite a, a hard hitting statement. So could you explain to us, please, a little bit about what social proof is, and how we might use this psychological principle, please? Of, of course. And, and uh, again, just as we spoke about signaling, social proof lives in the part of the book that's really exploring trust. Um, and how we can help and sort of imbue trust or embed trust without without changing the truth. Um, and and once again, to go back to the natural world, we can see social proof um, in, the, in the natural world all around us, from schools of fish all the way through to herds of animals that, um, that, that live on the savannah to, to mounds of meerkats that have two or three meerkats watching for predators while the others can, can, safely, can safely feed. And, and it's because of the group that they're able to do that, not spend 90% of their time looking for predators and only 10% of the time eating. Um, so if we continue to do what other people are doing, other living people are doing, then there's a, a higher likelihood um, that we'll survive ourselves. And when we think of the concept of social proof, um, most readily, I suppose, in behavioral science, it can be easy to think about messages like many people in your area are recycling or your neighbors are currently using this much energy we can we can see it very clearly in in the written world um, but what i find fascinating is sort of subtle environmental cues that we can learn from um, that that aid us and provide us with a degree of social proof um, so when researching the book actually i discovered a, a, a really fascinating area called uh, uh, of marketries uh, in north america 
So uh, indigenous North American Indians um, used to bend oak saplings um, at particular points. So the tree would grow with a branch at a, at a right angle, for, for example, to, to signal safe passage across a specific stretch or, um, or point towards um, rich soil or, or, or sacred sites. Um, and, and I love that as a, an example of how we can manufacture um, sort of social proof in the wild. We can set, we can sort of signal that this is a safe place to to, to play, um, and and we see this in sort of unintended wear and tear, like the foot of St Peter's that's been worn away in the Vatican. We can see that over thousands thousands of pilgrims that have come through over time, it's worn away. So again, it looks like trusted safe passage. It's the expected behaviour in that in that scenario. And, and, and on a slightly less grand um, scale, I guess, if you're going through woods and you see a, a worn path that, that seems to have been travelled before, that's probably the way to go, right? Exactly. It's, it's, in this instance, it's the, it's the path that's well-trodden mm. um, that, that, that we should, that is the, it is the safer path. And, and, and as you say, so how can we bring that into, into our context? What are the signals that show that other people like us might have participated in that behaviour before? What can we leave in a context, in an environment, just like a market tree, just like the worn away foot of St. Peter's, just like a testimonial on an Amazon website or a star rating review where we get a sort of classic evidence of social proof. We can start to think about how we can utilize this, this concept. Um, and you mentioned when we sort of introduced the discussion today around the, the power of, of questions. And I, I write a lot in the book about systematic creativity and how these principles that behavioral science is helping us to more readily see um, are really fascinating and they help to sort of I think better understand our word world um, but but they also arm us with richer questions by which we can interrogate our problems or, or, or innovate so if we think in social proof we might think what can we add to a specific context to show that someone might have been there before how can we show that their friends are already engaging in this particular behavior um, what might be we write or arm people with to show that it's a trusted environment um, so, so so the list can go on and on and 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 the foot of some Peters or, or, the, or a marketry or an Amazon um, five-star review all give us slightly different variants of questions that we can apply in foreign contexts, whether again you're a, a bank or a butcher, we can all learn from this to reinforce trust. So that's, that's sort of adding things within a context. The other part of social proof that I find is interesting is sort of when you take things away and, um, and, and things are missing from a context that you would otherwise expect to be there that shows that others have been there before us. So the classic example of this, um, I think, is a really rich piece of behavioral design. Although, uh, imagine those sort of classic rip tag flyers. If you know those rip tag fly for a Spanish lesson or guitar lesson that has the mobile phone number that you sort of rip off. And the, the, the best thing to do, I think, when if you're ever putting them up is to just make sure you rip off the first four. It shows that four other people are interested in this. You mean, mm. um, it's, it, you, you walk past the, the, the rip tag flyers that all have all the phone numbers and you go, that must be a waste of time. Um, so actually, the absence of something that you would expect to be in a context can help to reinforce trust. Um, you, if you imagine sort of crumbs of cookies at the bottom of a cookie jar shows that they must have been good cookies. I remember going to, and I write about this in the book, going to a cafe um, and, uh, and looking at the food selection. And, and I remember sort of looking at the counter and there was 
a gaping hole for the sausage rolls and the mince pasties and but the the, the vegetarian and vegan selection was sort of perfectly manicured and untouched mm. and it was the fact that it was untouched <laughs> that made me question my decision yeah um so again it's the other side of 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 this so rather than say what can we put in the context to show someone's been there before we might ask what might people be expecting that's that when removed shows that it's a trusted choice but what might we take away from a particular environment to show that people have already engaged? Slightly different questions will get us slightly different answers. So if we think about social proof in, context, in the context of buying your book, and I hope people do, uh, when you go to Amazon, you see hundreds of five-star reviews, and that's, that's social proof, right? It's that other people have found this interesting, therefore I might find this interesting. That's right. That's right. And 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 so so five star reviews, testimonials uh, are evidence that people have been here before. If you look at sold out, <laughs> that's evidence that someone's been here before and bought it. Right. So that's the other side. That's the that's the rip tag fly the crumbs at the bottom of the cookie jar. Uh, if something is sold out, even Amazon have a lovely way of saying it. I think it's so good at sold out. They, they, they speak in their stores yeah. when things are things are missing. That's just reminded me of something, and I'd love to talk to you about it. I got an email the other day. I, I recently bought a new Mac book from Curry's. Unbelievably, I could get it quicker from Curry's than I could from Apple itself. But anyway, that's another story. Um, so now I'm signed up to their, their email list. And they sent me an email um, probably a week afterwards with a whole list of perhaps 10 products, and seven of them were sold out. Now, I think that they were probably clumsily trying to use social proof that these are so good that they're sold out. But why email me with all the stuff that I can't buy? You can't get what do you think is going on there. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good question. And I think and, and this is where and I, and I, I nod to this also in, in, in the book where there's sort of balance between social proof and scarcity. Um, but scarcity is another if, if something is is scarce we feel we might miss out on it and so we value it more so so sometimes if there's only sort of uh, two items remaining um, one argument is it could be considered proof that other people have bought it therefore it's valuable the other is that well it's a scarce resource and 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 and, and, and that sort of triggers us into action so i think there's 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 a there's a there's a gray area on that spectrum but i think it's a, a, a space to explore um but you're right investing in investing in messaging and potential clients with items that they can't buy um is a is a, is an odd one um but potentially i think i think there it's because you're um maybe not interested in those products explicitly it might just be driving you to to if if there is something that's available that you are interested then i better get there quick so it uh -huh. might be actually tapping into more of a of a, of a an element of scarcity than than social proof um and and I think it's important that we don't get lost in the sort of in the in the I, th I think it's important we don't get stuck in the weeds on the definition. Are we talking scarcity here or are we talking social proof? The most I mean, firstly, the most important thing is we're discussing that we're interrogating something quite subtle on an email and asking either this is by accident or it's by design. If it's by accident and it's successful, the likelihood is that they'll continue to do it, oftentimes without knowing why it was successful, but we know when we do this, it works. And that's why behavioral science has been so helpful because it can start to explain why we've been successful in some executions. And over time, we converge on, on a winning answer. Um, but, but whether it's social proof or whether it's scarcity, by looking at a successful execution, we can again ask, ask better questions of the challenges that we face um, to unlock new opportunities for innovation. Yeah, so I mean, if, if, I'd, if I'd have landed on the Curry's website, 
as a an interesting punter, interested punter, and I'd have seen all of these sold out, and then a few, only two left and stuff, then it might have worked. But the fact they chose to send outbound messaging to me to say you can't have any of this, by the way, seemed super strange. An interesting one. Yeah. But it'd be good to go again. There, there might be method, and this is the, the wonderful thing, and and um, there, there could well be method in the in 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 what's sort of the perceived yeah. madness, whether it's 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 actually reinforcing the value of the things that are available, and those are the ones that they've loaded for you um it, it's a, it could be a what's known as a as a decoy in, yeah. in decision making um so if it's anyone from curry's marketing team listening i'd genuinely please be call in to know how that worked yeah like please do get in touch because it's um it, it really did it really made me i know i'm in the industry but it made me stop and think and think well what, why why are they doing that that's uh, interesting i suppose from an advertising point of view um the whiskers eight out of ten cats prefer it is um a bit of social proof is it Cat, cat proof yeah. when we start when we start to talk about those that is that is a, a degree of social proof um absolutely excellent okay so the third principle sam i'm going to leave open to you um there's as i said there's so much gold in the book and i, I really would recommend that people read it and give yourself a lot of time to read it and make notes and think about it but um I could have picked any number of um, principles, but I wanted to leave this one to the one that you think is the most interesting, um, the one that you've had the most fun with. Um, the floor's yours, Sam. So, uh, what would you like to talk about? Thank you. So, it's a it's a tricky one, as you said. There's lots of areas that that are, I find interesting, certainly. Um, but one one space, and and it's in in the the, the part of the book that's it explores triggering action. Um, so, in evolutionary ideas, we sort of set up a, a, a uh, the broader concept of evolutionary innovation versus revolutionary innovation and and use a few different um, parallel industries to help tell the story um, and and then go deeper into we've explored a lot today about reinforcing trust we explore aiding decision making we explore triggering action reinforcing experience boosting loyalty um, but so this specific principle is is in in triggering action and it's it's around completedness or, or pattern deviance and again, that's sort of the, the concept of, of pattern deviancy was was one that, that I researched in, in in writing the book. And when you look at um, the the brain, it, it loves symmetry. I mean, unexpected patterns don't help us. Um, if you many of us might be sort of aware of seeing faces in the in in cars, or we sort of will look at a building and it looks like there's a, a, a smiley face. We sort of we make sense of what's in front of us because patterns that don't match don't help us. Um, but it also means then it's, if something isn't symmetrical or there is a pattern that is broken, we sort of a, our attention is drawn to it and we find it quite uncomfortable. Um, and we have this sort of this need to to correct it. Um, so if you imagine getting a, a Kit Kat and instead of eating it stick by stick, someone just takes a big hunk out of the end of it, just a big bite you're in, and our skin crawls just a little bit. It just feels that's the wrong, that's the wrong thing to do. That's 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 deviant behavior. You've you've broken, you've sort of broken the pattern. Or you see a pizza um, instead of sort of cut into the the, the sort of the, the triangles that we're used to, someone just cuts a big square out of the middle uh, and in, and enjoys that again it's just it's just it's, it's it breaks our expectations is not what we not what we seek and, and therefore we find it uncomfortable uh, and, and we can then start to see this in um 
in, in triggering behavior, which is what the, the, the chapter is all about. And I was sort of fascinated with a, um, a light switch that I discovered from a designer, a Swedish designer called Louv Broms. And the light switch uh, is made of a zebra pattern. And there's an, an image of it in the, in the, in the book. Uh, and when the light is switched on, uh, it breaks this zebra pattern. It sort of becomes this distortion. And when you switch the lights off again, it, it marries the pattern up. So it looks like this beautiful expected zebra pattern. So every time we sort of switch the lights on, it feels awkward. It feels incomplete. It, and it, it nudges us to, to switch the lights off. And we see this in, in books. I mean, if anyone's bought their children the Mr. Men series or, or unit by unit, you might see on the spines that it makes the, the Mr. Men um, logo. I mean, you see it sort of adding up. We'll see the same with the Lord of the Rings. We'll see um, the Reader's Digest used to have sort of d different dots that you could see if you missed a, a quarter because your bookshelf would be irregular. I mean, so you sort of nudge to continue the pattern to not to not to not break it so there's something really i find really fascinating in deviants making something feel incomplete and therefore um, you're driven to complete the to complete it so what's the what's the puzzle that's almost there that you just need to close the loop or what's the what's the light switch or the or the bundle um, that feels a little bit awkward and that can be in pricing i mean to have two irregular prices that come together to make a perfect hole i mean so you have your bag of crisps for a pound 65 and you have your your your, your drink for a, a pound 35 but together they're three pounds it's like well that's a beautiful round number the awkwardness of a pound 35 sort of just feels yuck yeah. um and there's some fascinating research when we look at pricing that just round clean numbers like 10 pounds um is more attractive than a 10 pounds 05 or or 976 because it just it just looks awkward it's uncomfortable certainly for emotional purchases yeah so on the pricing thing that's really interesting because there used to be um a habit i guess or a practice um to call something 9.99 rather than 10 pounds because it sounded like it started with a nine so it sounded cheaper um, but you're actually saying that the round number is more likely to um feel pleasing to us you can find the sort of the, the simplicity of a, of a perfect 10 could be more attractive than 9.99. But there's lots of um, there's lots of interesting research on left digit. I mean, so as you say, the, the, the nine being the left digit, whether that anchors us on a, on a cheaper price point. Also, the difference between 9.99 versus 9.95, you know, it feels like you're really sort of going to the as, as, as far as you possibly can to make to make the discount. Pricing is an area um, that is uh, that is a fascinating one to explore. So I don't want to uh, overstate roundedness for for every every sale. Certainly, the the literature speaks to it more of um, emotive sales versus cognitive sales. If you imagine sort of something that feels more of a of a um, an, an emotional purchase versus a, a more considered. Uh, I don't want to say sort of rational purchase because there's a degree of emotion in every in every purchase, but sort of a, a handbag versus a, a washing machine, for example. Um, but but there's a lot of literature on prices. So I don't want to overgeneralize here, but it's certainly a space when we look at symmetry, simplicity, um, roundedness. Um, there, there's something that's pleasing to the brain, and it's certainly an area that we should explore more. Good. 
Okay, before you go, actually, um, could you tell the story of the Japanese train and um, how the designers <laughs> looked at, um, at uh, mimicry to, um, to try and figure out some sort of engineering problems? Because that, that was a really interesting story from the book as well. Of, of course, I mean, and, that, and actually hearing this story was the, the trigger for the book for me. Um, so uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll briefly tell the story and I'll tell why I think it was the penny drop moment for me of, of, for, for the creation of the book. Um, but essentially the, the challenge was on the, the, the Shinkansen rail line in, 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 in Japan, the, the stretch of rail that connects Tokyo and Osaka. And the challenge was to reduce the time that it took the train to, to go between both cities. And, and what was interesting when they looked at the, the rail cars themselves, the experimental rail cars, there wasn't actually an issue with reaching the speed. The problem was that the faster the trains went, the louder that they became and, and it, it went over the regulations in, in Japan. So the gentleman in charge of um, the, the project was a gentleman called Ejai Katsu. And while he's an amazing engineer, the, the interesting thing about Ejai was he was always also a, an avid bird watcher. Um, and after seeing a lecture about the connection between sort of the, the bird life and, and, um, and, and engineering innovation, he thought maybe there's, there's something we can borrow from birds to help us achieve this, achieve this task. And, and fundamentally they did. So I'll speak to sort of two of the, two of the birds. Um, the, well, the, the three birds are the Adelie penguin, the owl and the, and the kingfisher, but I'll speak to the owl and the kingfisher. So the, the, the owl helped um, to dampen the sound on a part of the train called the pantograph. So above the train, the, the bullet train. Um, there's a, it connects, essentially connects the train to the overhead wires and a bit of a wing-like form actually. And the faster the trains went, it made this big sort of whooshing sound. It created these huge turbulences. Um, so the team uh, sort of explored the, the feathers of owls, they actually um, borrowed an, an owl from the, the local museum. And what they have, um, what owls have is known as micro serrations. So they have micro serrations on their feathers that help them chop up the air into micro vortexes. Um, it helps them to swoop down and stun their prey in virtual silence because it dissipates the air with these micro turbulences. So what they did was they added micro turbulences to the pantograph and, and that helped to, to remove some of the sound. But the biggest challenge they faced on the Shinkansen was actually going through tunnels. So if we imagine in classic evolutionary theory, it's, a, it's, a, it's an environmental constraint um, that, that the train needed to overcome these, these tunnels, because as they've sped through these tunnels, they created this, this boom, a tunnel boom sound. Um, and, and again, um, EJ and the team looked, to the, looked to, the, to, to the skies and borrowed from the kingfisher, a bird that's perfectly evolved um, to, to swoop down and stun its prey in the water, a substance 800 times denser than air. It's evolved perfectly to do this. Maybe if we actually borrow a little bit from the kingfisher bill, we can, um, we can, uh, we, we can penetrate the, the, the tunnels without making the boom. Um, and they found actually, they fired a series of bullets into, into a chamber and, and the one that was near perfectly the same as the, as the Kingfisher bill, which has a quite a unique diamond shape when you look in profile, was the, the most efficient. Um, so it's a lovely example of actually, rather than starting from scratch or looking at the annals of, of, of engineering or, 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 or deep physics, by borrowing from the evolved biology of birds, we can actually bring that into our world. And when I heard this story, and it's it's spawned a huge industry called biomimicry, and I explore that in the book, and we, we, we don't need to go into that now. But 
that's what we can also do with behavioral science. Rather than looking at the physical realm that borrows from biology around us, this is looking at the cognitive realm and what's actually evolved every day with thousands of marketeers, thousands of designers, maybe not over millions of years, but trial and error, adaptation, learning. When we spoke about curries, it's hard to know. Is that on purpose? Is that by design or is that an accident? Um, if you see it again, Maybe, maybe we'll say, actually, this is working for them. They might not know why, and, and maybe that's our task to better understand why it works. But we tend to converge on winning solutions, just as a shark and a dolphin, a fish and a mammal have converged on the solution of a dorsal fin. They're in both entirely different species have both converged on a winning biological solution. Across industry, we converge on, on winning solutions in the cognitive realm. And that's what behavioral science is helping us to more easily see with language that we've explored today, like signaling, like social proof, like defaults, like pattern deviance. Um, this, this language helps us to see these things that have been applied, have been successful um, in, in, in many different industries in many different ways. And, and now we can sort of pluck them just like we pluck a feather from an owl and turn it into a pantograph. We can, we can learn something from the, the, the worn away foot of St. Peter's and, and a rip tag flyer when we're, when we're writing our next EDM or, or crafting our next campaign. And, and for me, that's, that's super exciting. And the, the world is our canvas. Fascinating. Um, I think a lot of podcasts sort of peter out, but we saved some absolute gold. To <laughs> make sure that I let people know that if they don't think, oh, I'll stop listening. I think I've got it now. Um, that's, a, yeah, that's, that's a really fascinating story. Can you imagine how excited you'd be if you were the engineer that came up with that? Hang on a minute. Let's have a look at owl's feathers. That might help us. It's, uh, you'd be buzzing when you'd be like, wow. And that's the thing. And when speaking with people, sometimes it's just, does this help us to have permission for radical ideas by being able to say, well, it works it works in the animal kingdom, maybe we can try it now. If you look at, and, and listeners, please have a look at biomimicry. It's a wonderful field, learning from rabbits' ears to create air cooling systems, borrowing from humpback whales to make efficient wind turbines, the tubercles of a humpback whale sort of increase the lift while reducing the drag. And these wonderful ways in which let's not start from scratch. Um, just as we don't need to start from scratch when we look at an example of social proof, we just need to redeploy that for our context. We need to yeah. learn how a feather can be helpful on a train, a fin can be helpful on a wind turbine, a rabbit's ear can be helpful in an air conditioner. Um, maybe some of the examples that we've explored today in signaling social proof and patent deviancy can help us in, in, in our innovation in the cognitive realm. Yeah, um, I can't remember the exact words, but you, you said in the book, um, from an evolutionary standpoint, if it doesn't work, it's a fossil at this stage. Yeah, um, well, that's that's the lovely language of, of, of the biomimicry field, failures of fossils. I mean, if you yes. think of sort of 3.8 billion years of research and development, if it's around today, there's, there's something good about it. And whether yeah. it's the, the bill of a kingfisher or the or the proboscis of a mosquito that then is now helping to develop pain, painless needles, there is, there is something if it's around today, there's something that we can learn from it. Yeah. Um, and while we're, we're, we're doing, a, I think, a, an increasingly good job in, in architecture, design and engineering, learning from biology, actually there's a whole space to learn from in the cognitive realm. Um, and, and, and that's what I'm proposing in, in evolutionary ideas. Amazing. Sam, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for your time. Fascinating conversation. Please do go out and buy the book. Um, it, there's some absolute gold in there. As I say, have a notepad handy and don't expect to read it too quickly because it really does get you thinking. Um, have a lovely evening and thanks again for your time, Sam. 
Thanks so much. It's my pleasure.